They went with the good school budget. They got rid of the SNAP benefit test where people with any kind of assets couldn't get food stamps. The House and Senate wrapped up their budget negotiations, and we've got a lot to talk about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and in the hot seat, first up, Jane Cahoon, who handles all of those stories coming out of the State House. Jane, you're ready to go? Wait, I... I, you want to talk about the state budget vote last night? I was at the <laughs> Indians game watching them slaughter the Detroit Tigers. You don't want to talk about that? No, we got to get to the budget. <laughs> okay. Let's begin. After a whirlwind lesson on how to not make laws in Ohio, the Senate and House reached agreement on a two-year budget proposal. So, Jane Cahoon, what's in and what's out as it heads to Governor Mike DeWine, who is armed with a line item veto to get rid of anything that is truly nonsense? <laughs> well, I think the thing of that's most consequential is in this $74 billion budget is that they went with the House version of the school funding overhaul plan, that this plan that had been like years in the making that House Speaker Bob Cup worked on as a legislator with with uh, someone across the aisle on, you know, before he became speaker. But it's it's going to boost funding for schools by hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's going to make the system of funding schools more fair by by targeting poorer areas. It it does give the Senate what it wanted in terms of boosting vouchers for private schools, but um, but the formula that they changed, it's, it's based on what they have figured out to be the cost of educating each child. And it takes into consideration poverty and income rather than, you know, just the, the system we have now that's based on property wealth. And um, so, you know, it's, it's going to be mm, 226 million uh, increase for K-12 in 2022 and another $141 million in 2023. Um, I think this was a major factor in why the budget got really strong bipartisan support, even though there were other parts of the budget that Democrats, you know, found hard to swallow. It passed the House 82 to 13 and 32 to 1 in the Senate. But but both, you know, both sides of the aisle were happy with this with this funding well, plan. I mean, the school funding was interesting. I mean, we, we all know that it's been decades since the Supreme Court said we have an unconstitutional system and they never were able to fix it. And so then the House, as you said, they spent three years. They talked to educators. They did all this work. And after they put it together, the Senate came in with a quickly thrown together plan that Matt Dolan oversaw that was actually, it turns out, penalizing poor districts, enriching rich districts, not thoughtful at all. So it's nice to see that the house which did all the work prevailed there i we are going to do some stories about what this you know we've talked and talked about the structure and how this works but what does it mean on the ground what's it going to mean in the classroom how will it play out there because that's what it is all about uh they didn't just do the school budget though they they also dealt with their the, the stupid food stamp thing that the Senate Republicans were trying to do. That's not in there. Talk a little bit about that. Right. They took away this asset test that they that the Senate had put in there that would have, you know, for food stamp recipients, it it would have cut off their benefits for households with twenty two hundred and fifty dollars or more in savings. 
and they would and it put these onerous requirements on poor people to report every change in income worth more than five hundred dollars, like if they got an extra work shift or or odd job. So so they ditched that. So we don't have that anymore. And at uh, one point they were saying if you had a car worth seven thousand dollars or more, which is one beat up car, you couldn't get it either. It was one of those wacky things that just came out of nowhere with yeah. no discussion. What else? The, the House leaders said they really were concerned about people, you know, trying to make ends meet, which I thought was a rather, you know, compassionate statement. But it, but anyway, what else? Well, we got the, the income tax cut, which is a major portion of the budget. Uh, the Senate had wanted 5%. The House had proposed 2%, and they, they landed on 3%. And that's going to cost about $1.6 billion. They also flattened things out a little bit. They, they eliminated some... Uh, income tax uh, brackets, uh, eliminating the top bracket, and they, they would be down to four brackets. And they also, like right now, if you make uh, $22,150, you don't have to pay income tax. They raised that threshold to 25000 All right, let's talk about broadband. Broadband has been discussed big time, largely because the pandemic showed that it's a it's a basic need now, not a luxury. And for some reason, at one point, the Senate Republicans wanted to prohibit cities from providing broadband and cut out a lot of money that, that Mike DeWine and, and others wanted to put in. So where do we stand on broadband? Yeah, we've talked about that one. So they they scrapped the Senate proposal that would have effectively banned municipalities from operating their own broadband programs. So that is not in there. And in addition, you know, the Senate had eliminated all this money for for broadband. Well, they not only put back in what the House had proposed, 190 million, they upped that to 250 million, which was the amount that was originally sought by by Governor Mike DeWine. So Yes, money for broadband. They're also putting more money to um, clean up brownfield sites uh, and um, and uh, uh, demolition of blighted or nuisance buildings around the state. So there's more money going to that. And all of that, the broadband, the brownfield sites, and the demolition money would come from these higher than expected tax revenues over the next two years. That's according to Senate President Matt Hoffman. They, it's not just the budget that they're moving. They, they also took some action on vaccinations, but it, it is not nearly as bad as what we had discussed last week, where they were going to prohibit hospitals from changing the work uh, assignments of people who were unvaccinated, which could have put a, a seriously immune-compromised patients in danger. What they ultimately put forward is not all that egregious. What was it? Well, I, I'll just remind you, first of all, that doesn't mean the other proposals are, are dead. They're, they're still floating <laughs> around out there. OK, so this isn't the final word, I'm confident. Uh, but, yeah, they did put something. This was an unrelated bill, nothing to do with the budget. But they stuck a provision in there that um, you can't require uh, people to be to get a vaccine that's not fully approved by the FDA, which that means the coronavirus vaccines, which are op operating under emergency use authorization right now. So, uh, and it the... doesn't affect hospitals, uh, So, it, but it would affect schools. So, um, you know. But by the time schools come back into session, they could have the full approval. And that's pretty much the military standard. The, the Army can't require 
soldiers to get a vaccine when it's under emergency. They can only do it when it's fully in there. So compared to what they've been talking about, it's not nearly as dangerous for public health. Layla and Lara, you've been talking with us for weeks and weeks about the budget. Should should we be grateful they took out the egregious stuff or should we be angry that there's still a whole bunch of dumb stuff that's still in there? I mean, have we have we been Yeah, we haven't even scratched submission? the surface, guys. There's still some a lot of stuff in there that we just don't have time to go into. But anyway, I'll give it to Laura and Layla. Well, is that their strategy, I, I, uh, right? No. That they make it look so bad that when it's not quite as bad when it passes, you're like, okay, I can live with it. <laughs> that's that's not a bad strategy. I'm I'm happy to see the asset test gone. That was the thing that I thought my head was going to blow off my shoulders when I first heard about that one. That's I, I'm really relieved to see that they saw the light on that. Um, but but I don't know what what grade would you give this budget, Jane, in all the budgets oh. you've seen <laughs> through the years? Uh Jeez, a B? I, oh, maybe, <laughs> no. maybe. Really? Wow, you, know, you are way too easy a grade. We, we can't let this go by it's bringing on up. a curve when you think about all the <laughs> junk that could have ended up there. This, this is going to bring down the grade, but they still left in that provision about the the redistricting thing. It allows the Senate president and the House Speaker to use state money to intervene in lawsuits over a new redistricting plan you know the attorney general right it's their legal slush fund because they're planning to do bad things and they want to hire better lawyers the attorney general i'll be interested to hear what dave yost has to say about that because it's his job uh that is one of the most egregious things we're gonna have to move on you're listening to this week in the cle What fairly big step did Cuyahoga County take Monday in making one of County Executive Armin Budish's big initiatives become reality, one that would help drug addicts and the mentally ill? Leila Tassi, we talk all the time about all the incompetent things Armin Budish does. This this initiative is a really good one if he can ever get it off the ground. It's fumbled for five years. What happened this week? I agree. The, The County Board of Control approved hiring an architect to begin plans on a permanent 150-bed diversion center for people experiencing mental illness or addiction so they can be treated rather than simply incarcerated. And this facility would replace the temporary diversion center that's that was approved back in December and has been operating under the tutelage of Oriana House in a 50-bed facility on East 55th Street. It hasn't been determined yet where this new diversion center will be or how much it's going to cost. They should know all that by early next year. But they hired Cleveland-based, or they will <coughs> hire Cleveland-based perspectives, prospectus architecture, and they'll get paid $478,000 under this new contract, and it will be funded with the county's opioid settlement money, which seems like an appropriate use for that money. One of the first decisions that they'll have to make is whether to build from scratch or renovate an existing building. Budish's administration has had its eye on the old Juvenile Justice Center on East 22nd Street between Central and Cedar which has been vacant since 2012. The county is expected to soon ask council to approve some asbestos mitigation and some other work there. And and council members are a little concerned that making that investment now uh, in those improvements to that facility will kind of preordain it as the site of choice for the diversion center. But the administrators are saying that's not the case. Asbestos mitigation has to be done regardless of whether that's the building they choose. Even if they demolish it, they'd have to do that work. So council will eventually be presented with a few choices when the when the time comes. This is just, you know, long overdue. You know, if Budish does this, I think that this will be one of his crowning achievements. You know, the county 
uh, adopting this model is is just a such a big step in the right direction. I really hope it proves successful in connecting people with the treatment they need and diverting them from the criminal justice system and alleviating the crowding at the jails and and also there's a training piece, you know, training police officers to provide crisis intervention and recognize when a suspect is a candidate for diversion rather than rather than jail. So yeah, the altogether, jail, good things. The jail was up to 1,600 plus people yesterday, so it's yeah. crowded again. You know, when Budish first got into office, he told us about this plan and we thought it was brilliant. Putting it at the juvenile, the old historic juvenile building, which is a, a gem, uh, is close to St. Vincent Charity Hospital, which does a lot of this kind of work. The problem was he didn't didn't play the politics right. He didn't talk to the city councilwoman, who was Phyllis Cleveland, and that created friction that kind of put this thing into jeopardy. I think it's interesting they're moving forward on on that building now with, because Phyllis Cleveland resigned from council a few months ago. So <laughs> so maybe the door is open. But I agree with you. This is this is a signature idea. When Buddhist came into office, he had a couple of really big ideas that he didn't really move down the path. But if this one can get there, it can make a big difference. And then the fact that the jail had 1,624 people in it yesterday is frightening because the last time it started to get that high, it was when we saw lots of death and, and bad things, abuse. Uh, some of the judges at the in the county court have got huge numbers of people over there because they're just not moving their dockets and it's causing mm. causing danger again. So credit to Armin Budish for getting this thing moving. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did people whose license tags expired during the pandemic not only get a pass on renewing them, but save the money they would have spent on the renewals? How about the driver's licenses? Laura Johnston, I'm thinking that people who actually renewed their tags during the pandemic are suckers because they gave the state money they didn't have to. Right. But there's really no deal here because you have to pay your regular renewal fee uh, for your license, but you don't actually get any more mileage out of it. Your license is backdated to the original expiration date. So you still get, I think it's four years out of every license and you didn't get any more out of it. And then for the plates, I believe you have to play, pay both. For a license plate that would have expired on June 1st, 2020, you pay that fee that would have been due at the time as well as the renewal fee for 2021. So as of Friday, according to Jeremy Pelster, who wrote the story, about 100,000 Ohioans had not yet renewed driver's license that expired between March 9th of 2020 when the coronavirus emergency began and April 1st, 2021. Another 220,000 residents have to renew their plates. That's actually not that many when you think about it because there are 13 million registered vehicles in Ohio and the state BMV usually renews about 2.5 million uh, licenses per year. So, I mean, I'm actually surprised by how few people we have to like goad into like going before they expire on Thursday. I misread the story then. My reading of the story was that you get a pass for the, the expired period and you start fresh. You're saying that you don't. You're pay if your tag expired a year ago, you're paying for that year as well? That's what Jeremy's story said. And maybe we should bring in Jane Cahoon, who is Jeremy's editor. But that's 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 my reading. And I because I'm, I'm glad that nobody's getting a deal. I would have been like, hey, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, what Jeremy said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I misread it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
How did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine come to the rescue of Ohio State University so that it can remain competitive with other football powerhouses when it comes to recruiting the best players? Jan Cahoon, I can't believe the Republicans in the legislature served this one up to Mike DeWine. I mean, they have been <laughs> his foils all through the pandemic, but their, their parochial politics messed with Ohio State and Mike DeWine saw that served up on a platter. <laughs> what did he do? The governor swooped in on Monday and signed an executive order to do what, as you said, the legislature had failed to do at that point, which is pass this uncontroversial bill with wide bipartisan support that would allow college athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness. As we talked about on yesterday's podcast, this bill had been headed for an easy passage by the House after clearing the Senate unanimously. But it got derailed when Republicans in the House added a ban on transgender student athletes from competing in girls and women's sports. And that kind of sunk the whole thing and, and, and sunk the emergency clause that would have had it take effect right away. And uh, it, the Senate didn't like it anyway, back and forth, back and forth. But uh, so, you know, as as you said, this is really important to Ohio State in recruiting athletes because other states already have these kind of laws and they would be put at a disadvantage. And also, as you said, who wants to be on the record as doing anything to disadvantage the Buckeyes in Ohio? Huh? You know, so, uh, do, you know. But basically what ended up happening is this executive order was like a patchwork solution because the legislature later on Monday stuck it in the budget, and which, which uh, makes it effective immediately with the new fiscal year beginning Thursday. So, uh, but DeWine does get credit for, for saving the day, uh, even though they well, did pass it by the end of the day. Yeah, the July 1st is important because that's when all the other football powerhouse states had set theirs to begin. And so if you're going for a top recruit and they could say, hey, look, you can make money on your name, image, and likeness here, but you can't in Ohio, it would have hurt us. I, I did catch a part of the press conference where he signed this order. Um, and there really was, uh, you can sense that he just knew he hit this one out of the park. People were talking about you don't mess with Buckeyes, <laughs> and and the and the legislature is is at one point DeWine was asked a question. He goes, "Oh, don't ask me to talk about the legislature." I mean, he just he knew, and you know, look, these are people like I said that had been messing with him. I mean, some members of the legislature wanted to arrest him because of what he was doing to protect us during the pandemic. So this was this was a little bit of revenge. But what <laughs> morons to serve that up to him when they're so intent on trying to replace him with somebody that's more far right. A good day for Mike DeWine. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Last week we had eight. This week we have seven. We're talking about candidates for Cleveland mayor, Layla Atassi, who dropped out. Landry Simmons, the only Republican in the race. <laughs> he withdrew his name yesterday because he just couldn't scrape up the 3,000 ballot signatures he needed to make the ballot. I mean, I think I think we can get real here. I think this race would have been impossible for him. The top two finishers, <laughs> I mean, the top two finishers in the primary make the November ballot, and he would have been facing seven Democrats in this primary. So I'm not exactly sure what math he was doing when he decided this was his moment in politics. <laughs> but uh, you know, his departure leaves in the race. Uh, Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly, Cleveland City Councilman Bashir Jones, State Senator Sandra Williams. Former Mayor Dennis Kucinich, former Cleveland City Councilman Zach Reed, nonprofit executive Justin Bibb, and attorney Ross DeBello. 
uh, you know, I don't know. So far, the race has been kind of boring, don't you think, without a, a clear front runner? Kevin Kelly is the establishment favorite. He's raised the most money. Dennis Kucinich, I don't know, bombards us with press releases expressing his outrage against the topic du jour. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was hilarious. On Friday, he, they put out a position statement on the ballot question about putting civilians in charge of the police. And then later in the day, that thing didn't make the ballot. I guess it still could. But um, <laughs> right. but yeah, I mean, it's I, I think it's it's heating up. I think people are working, working the streets and starting to get busy. I, I definitely think, think they are. That's true. Uh, I've and, heard you know, I've heard, uh, you know. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, there you you want to say that it's impossible for a Republican to win because it seems so. But George Voinovich was mayor. I mean, it's going back. You're going back uh, a long okay. way and it's a That's very different era. But but I don't I mean, nobody's heard of Mr. Landry, so I don't know how. He <laughs> Mr. Simmons. Or, or sorry, Mr. Simmons. Right. I don't even know his name. Right. It's like he's such an unknown. Oh, no. Um, you know, so what do you, I mean? You know, I've heard some of my colleagues speculate that 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 Kucinich might be the favorite. I don't know. I'm wondering what you guys think, because, I mean, obviously his name recognition is still so strong in the city. But, you know, let me tell you. So I recently was visiting a friend at her home on the near west side. It was the Edgewater neighborhood. And we got to talking about the mayor's race. And she said that they uh, have had campaigners knocking on the door just about every day from every campaign. But pretty much the whole neighborhood is for Justin Bibb. And that really surprised me because, Chris, you've said you didn't think that many knew him or much about him as a, as a newcomer and that Justin Bibb craze wouldn't spread much farther than, you know, his his east side base. But I think that guy's a contender. I don't think he should yeah, be no, underestimated, he, man. No, he's, he's, he's all over. Yeah, he. I think he's working. He's doing what you have to to get out on the street and knock on doors. And so I, I think he's making those connections and people are talking to him. You still have Bashir Jones, who who mm-hmm. came out very well in that Baldwin-Wallace poll out trying to electrify people. So there are some that believe that he will be in the runoff. Yeah, look, I think the, the wisest thing anybody has said about Dennis Kucinich came from Seth Richardson, our political correspondent who'll be on this podcast on Wednesday when he said that the day Dennis announced was his highest day mm-hmm. that every day after that as people come to to know him and what he stands for now he loses altitude because I think that's true I mean he has not been active in the city in quite some time he can't run on saving Cleveland public power anymore because his chief donor thus far is very closely tied to first energy so first energy becomes a negative for him and what does he stand for i mean what did he say when he came out i'll I'll hire 300 new police officers well that's ridiculous you can't there's no money for that the city can't afford it and i think people know that so so yeah he's a front runner because he's so well known and people on the east side and the west side really like him but will that continue until primary day or you know does kevin kelly's money buy him in look the other thing that's out there and this is going to be a game changer if the indians come forth with the plan to spend 80 or 100 million dollars in public money on their stadium the candidates are going to gravitate that like to that like a lightning rod and they probably won't be in favor of it and that could just change everything overnight kevin kelly Mm -hmm. will have to probably support that because economic development, it's all the stuff we normally say about a stadium. But we saw how stadium financing was politicized in the last mayor's race, and this will be worse. So mm-hmm. I, I think I think that's a big 
big unknown that's coming down the pike if that plan comes forward. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it changes the the race. And I can't imagine Bashir Jones or or Zach Reed or Dennis Kucinich embracing spending a hundred million dollars on on a baseball stadium and they'll hold up, you know, lead tainted children and say, Really, you want to spend a hundred million on a baseball stadium, or do we remove lead paint and stop poisoning our children? How's that gonna play? So right. they should just kind good. of let let Kevin Kelly die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's but you know, there is there's always the argument for that. Eighty one nights a year, people come into town, they go to the baseball game. Fewer and fewer. I mean, the Indians have had a winning team now for about ten years and they still cannot get fans to buy tickets or are they even viable. It's gonna be a great debate. And I think mm-hmm. it might end up defining this mayor's race. Uh, before it's over and you don't have a Marsha Fudge to come in at the last minute and rescue it like she did with the arena. And if Nina Turner wins the <laughs> race for Congress, I think she'll be on the other side. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio has its first new sports stadium in forever, the new soccer stadium in Columbus. Laura Johnston, what makes this one special? This is really cool. Lower.com Field is going to replace Matt Free Stadium as the home of the Columbus crew. And the crew ownership team is led by Dee and Jimmy Haslam, who obviously are behind the lakefront development plan in Cleveland. But I haven't seen this stadium. I'm hoping to get to go this fall um, with my sister, who's a big fan. I know you have, Chris, so you probably have more to say on this. But the idea that Mark Bono wrote about is that this is a fan-focused design. It's smart, has excellent sight lines, all sorts of concessions, specialized suites, and the ability to grow and make this a whole community outside the stadium to live, work, and play in. Some specifics he mentioned, the walkways are wide so fans don't bump elbows. There's state-of-the-art technology for security lanes so you don't have these long lines. They're trying to cater to loyal fans with the Nordeka, the, the German north corner, where there'll be a standing room only section the suites sound really pretty sweet and uh the field itself sounds pretty amazing that water can be absorbed in minutes and there's portable grow lights to shed lights in areas that fall under shadows for the roof but that everybody can see a hundred percent of the playing surface from anywhere in the stadium yeah it's it's called the pitch i learned laura when oh, sorry. i was down there i didn't know what that <laughs> what they were talking about at first <laughs> <laughs> now, there, there are a couple of really cool things. They, one of the cool things is there's not a whole lot of parking around there. Eventually there will be, but they're planning it to be a district. But what they expect is going to happen is people will do European style. They'll, they'll drink in town until it's time to go. And then there'll be this big procession, 15 minutes, where people all walk from downtown down to the stadium together. I saw something like that when I was in Ireland. We went and saw a Bruce Springsteen concert at a soccer stadium. And that's how everybody went. You walk like a mile and a half in this big throng of people uh, to get there because there really isn't anybody way to drive. The, uh, the thing that is really impressive is at one end, they've, they've, they've slanted the seats when there's not really seats, there's benches at a very steep angle because people down there stand the whole time screaming and they wanted it to be as steep as possible to be this intimidating wall. Um, They they, they really look like they've paid a lot of attention to the details. And if the district develops around there as they envision, that could be a lesson for Cleveland as it develops the waterfront. Of course, we need to inject the Burke Lakefront Airport into that discussion. <laughs> Something we'll say every time we mention it. Anyway, cool. I, I mean, I, I'm not a soccer guy at all, but I, it would be fun to go down and watch a game there just because of um, how accommodating this place is. The bad thing in my mind, it's a good thing for them. They've designed the roof 
so that it reflects the sound down in the loudest way possible because <laughs> they want roaring to go on all through the game. I think that would get to me after a while, but I'm old. I think You're listening. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say, I think, you know, the idea is that soccer is this growing sport in the United States and Columbus is a growth city. So they just expect this all to come together and kind of, you know, push the city even more forward into the future. You know what's amazing is they they broke ground earlier last year, but Mm -hmm. they put the first iron beam in in October and they built this thing that quickly in a pandemic. Even when supply lines were broken, they got that thing done basically between October and now. Although when I saw it, you were wondering, how is this going to be done? But it's like HDTV, right? At the very last minute, it, it gets done. <laughs> well, I did see the pictures. You know, there's still like paper over stuff. And, you know, it's, it's not finished. But according to Mark's story, anyway, the ground was dug on October 2019. The first steel beam went in in May 2020. So that's still talking a year, but not quite like a six-month fast-forward time frame. But all yeah, during the very, pandemic. Yeah, it's very fast. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do one more. Chantel Brown and Nina Turner are not just battling for a seat in Congress. They're battling for major endorsements. Jane Cahoon, how is that shaking out? The story that Seth did on this was fascinating. Yeah, Seth Richardson, he really laid it all out. And it was interesting to see how these endorsements lined up. You know, in many ways, people see this as a battle between establishment Biden type Democrats like Chantal Brown, who heads the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, and the more progressive wing, Nina Turner, you know, a Bernie Sanders surrogate who's been linked to the so-called squad in the in the U.S. House. But the endorsements don't neatly fall along those lines. There's a lot of nuance in there. So, you know, while Brown does have the endorsement of Hillary Clinton and Turner has the endorsement of Bernie Sanders. They're about split on local government endorsements, like from the two largest cities in the in the district, Akron and Cleveland. Uh, Nina Turner, for example, has Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson behind her, but uh, Brown has Akron Mayor Dan Horrigan. And then the council members are split, like Nina Turner has Blaine Griffin and others. And um, anyway, so it's and then Brown has this clear edge in Cuyahoga County government. She's she's a county councilwoman, of course, you know, with uh, County Executive Armin Butish and, and other uh, council members. Uh, but, you know, then Turner has, uh, they both have congressional support. And then Turner maybe has a slight edge when it comes to members of the state legislature. And she probably also has a few more Congress members in her corner. And then you get down to like the faith leaders and the unions, which are kind of split on this. Um, we don't have time to go into, you know, this list of of names, you know, mayors and leaders and, and others. But y- you could check it all out in Seth's story because he lays it out very, uh, very nicely uh, about, you I, know, who's got what. I liked how he looked, added up the population of all the cities where he, the the endorsements had come from to look at who had the most people in the endorsed cities. It was interesting. Check out a story close. on cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Wednesday with another discussion about the news.